everybody, Zach here for Dipped in Tone, and today it's just me. I'm flying solo, uh, interviewing my close friend, Mr. Tim Pierce. Rhett is taking a bit of a break, clearing his head, doing some traveling, so I'm just going to interview Tim. We're going to talk about a lot of great things, and hopefully you guys will dig our conversation. We kind of dig deep on this one. But before we get into the episode, I want to thank all our patrons over on patreon.com. If you want to support Dipped in Tone, Go to the link in the description below and you can find all about uh, the tiers of supporting this channel, the discounts you get, the benefits, the Discord channel, all those things you can learn about. Just hit that link in the description. And a special thanks to the sponsor of this episode, Sweetwater. I am gear obsessed just like so many of you. And when I lay in bed right before I fall asleep, what I'm doing is checking my phone, looking at guitars. And one of the things that I like to look at are all the demos and blends and all the great deals you can get at Sweetwater on guitars. But if you're not a guitar player or don't need another guitar, they have everything you need, all the accessories, recording equipment, content creation stuff, everything you need to do any of this stuff or any of the stuff in your head can be purchased at Sweetwater. So hit the link in the description below and check out all the stuff available at sweetwater.com. But thank you guys for checking out this episode. I'm really excited to get into it with Mr. Tim Pierce. Let's go. Hello there, Tim. How are you doing today? I'm pretty good. Great to see you guys. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm sad that, that Rhett can't be here. Um, but I'm really excited to sit down and have a conversation with you. I've got some questions from uh, some of our supporters over on on Patreon and stuff, and just some things that that I wanted to uh, pick your brain about because okay. you are, you know, you've done you've done a lot of stuff, and you've transitioned into a pretty unique place in the guitar space, and I think it's a very interesting thing and, a, and a, something that I'm sure a lot of people are really curious about. So. I think the first thing that I would want to know is who are your biggest guitar influences and what's your favorite recorded guitar sound? I'll try to answer that for you. Uh, <laughs> and it, it's, I'm going to take us off topic for a second. So my love of music comes from songs in the 60s. I was born in 58. And by the time I was three years old, I was falling in love with the AM radio and Top 40 radio. So really everything for me about music that I love was in those songs. Certainly in the later 60s, when I started to, you know, get around 10 years old, maybe nine years old, I started falling in love with guitar players. But for me, it was always guitar in service of songs. And that has never changed, really. I mean, I always love the great song with the eight bar guitar solo or the the guitar solo on the outro. But to me, one of the things that's missing today is guitar players don't really have that venue. So you, you, I, I call it virtuosity in service of nothing. And I know that sounds a little bit hard, uh, but in, in the environment that I grew up in, in the world that I grew up in, virtuosity was always subjugated to a greater concept, which was a great song, i.e. Stairway to Heaven, or even All Along the Watchtower. But or there might be, you know, Steely Dan had a great guitar solo in all their great songs. Any 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 great guitar player put together a band and did the work, wrote the great songs, got the singer. And then you would reveal that virtuosity uh, in service of a greater concept. And right. And so it. I, of course, fell in love with Jimi Hendrix. I'm just about to do a video, another video about Hendrix. Uh, Eric Clapton, you know, B.B. King, Billy Gibbons. Those are my influences because of my age, basically. But it was um, Johnny Winter was a huge one, too. And, and I, you know, every guitar player in every band, you know, from Ronnie Montrose to Pat Travers to Every single guitar player, the guy in the Atlanta rhythm section, I was obsessed with every guitar player in every band and every sound they got. Um, and then, you know, f I guess in the 70s, I started to fall in love with Steely Dan, Larry Carlton and the Mahavishnu Orchestra. 
but that was pretty much outside my i i'm a very simple guitar player and though i wanted to be able to play like eddie van halen and john mclaughlin and some of those guys it wasn't in the cards for me you know my eye to hand coordination is at a different in a different place um if I fast forward, I moved here in 1979 and I did a lot of work in the 80s. But in 1990, when the changing of the guard happened and Nirvana showed up and music became kind of a simpler affair, rock music got simpler. That's when I started to work seven days a week because I was the studio musician who could legitimately sound like a band player. So I would show up and play the simple parts from from the heart and not like I was just playing a part from a genre. And and so that actually made it so that, you know, guitar players do that now anyway. I mean, all you guys, all, all your friends in Nashville play from the heart. So that that right. that's not a problem anymore. But I, I back then in 1990, when I started working every day on records, I I was playing simple parts from the heart, like my life depended on it, like I owned the part, like I wrote the part. And that's what allowed me to work constantly. And I just want to add that because it's it kind of goes back to the same thing. It's my love of songs that has propelled me through everything. Now, you're, just restate your other question for me. What's your favorite recorded guitar sound? Or sounds, maybe if there's a handful. I'm sure there is. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, that's an impossible question to answer. Uh, I mean, I was just listening to the soloed guitar sound on Third Stone from the Sun of Are You Experience? And I've never heard anything that good. Uh, I recommend it if you get a chance to hear it. Uh, yeah, that's an impossible sound because there are thousands of them. I mean, that sound, that's yeah. an impossible question to answer because there are, there are thousands of them. We, I think we both share a love of Billy Gibbons. So for me, the sound that always sticks out in my head is um, like just got back from babies off that first record uh -huh. because I feel like that, that whole, that whole record in general just kind of encapsulates what a really great guitar sound is um, because it's so raw. It, it, there's not, it's pretty dry. Um, I think us as guitar players in the modern era, we tend to forget how much uh, studio magic went into creating those sounds, but it is, I feel like a pretty incredible representation. And I was, I was going back through some of your videos and watching uh, one of your, one of your ZZ top Lagrange lessons. It's a, I think it's an old one, but um like, can, can we just chat a little bit about our shared interest in Billy Gibbons and ZZ yes, Top as a, please, please, <laughs> as a band? Please, So, like, talk about that, um, discovering them and how that kind of influenced your playing and, and ear. Well, uh, once again, I go back to my youth and we had record stores. And, gosh, I hate to keep being... <laughs> <laughs> the <laughs> old storyteller. And here we go. I mean, you you went to the record store and you walked in and it smelled a certain way. And there were several record stores. There were actually a lot of record stores in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You walked in and you started looking at LPs. And if the LP had an interesting picture, sometimes you bought it just for that reason. Because at a certain point, they went down. They were like five ninety nine, then four ninety nine. You could buy them. If you bought five, you could get five for... Two ninety nine. Come home with five LPs, and if there was a Marshall amp on the cover, I would just buy it, just for that reason. <laughs> anyway, I saw ZZ Top open for some other band in Albuquerque right after Rio Grande Mud, and I was floored, absolutely floored. This was a raw three piece blues rock band I had never seen or heard before. Um, I mean, they were just on the bill. I saw them. They had the steer horns on their rear grand amps. They, you know, they retolexed the amps and made them rear grand amps. And right. it was them at their finest. No production, nothing. Just getting up, second act, getting up, playing in front of their amps. And so at that moment in time, there were two records available, ZZ Top's first album and Rear Grand Mud. So I just went deep into both of them and every single sound, part, vocal, song, nuance, Every single, you know, every word, <laughs> every name on the record. I mean, I just absorbed, just like, you know, that's that's what we did back then. There was so little information about anybody anywhere that when you found something, you you, back, you basically just, you uh, absorbed it like a sponge and you memorized it. So 
that that was my and just got paid really was that that song really blew my mind that yeah. riff was just it's still one of my favorite riffs of all time right yeah and it, it's one of those that i feel like there's you could say this about so many incredible uh guitar riffs but i feel like zz top it's it's really easy to get those riffs very wrong and i feel like some of them are are really hard to because i mean billy like retuned his guitar yeah. i think that's yeah, an open thing did. yeah but it, it it's it's an interesting thing like approaching learning all the all the the riffs and, and the playing from our heroes that and getting it right is something that is is i think the hardest like endeavor that any guitarist can kind of go go on most people don't go to the edge on that and right. if you do go to the edge you're much more likely to have a career as a musician uh i was very lazy about rhythm guitar until i moved here to la and then i almost started learning rhythm guitar on the job because i was i was pretty much obsessed with soloing and i was you know in spite of all i just said for the last 15 minutes I was obsessed with the guitar solo and my rhythm chops were not great when I moved here and started working. And I literally had to learn rhythm guitar on the job. <laughs> and that's what you're talking about. It's like the, the, the difference between getting something sort of and getting it all the way. And as I said, owning it and, and finding out the right way to do things is, is what makes people good enough to be professional. So I, I totally agree with you on that. Right. Um, you're talking about, uh, fitting in with a band or, or, or fitting, having your part that you play when you're, when you're doing a recording, fitting in with a band, not feeling like it's completely out of, out of place. Um, in regards to getting a sound and this kind of, uh, ties into a question that, that we got asked on Patreon. Um, how do you go about that? If you, if, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that there's a lot of direction but if if you're kind of given free reign of making a part or crafting a sound, what is your thought process? Where does it start? Well, I was lucky enough to do most of that work in rooms full of people every time. And um, <clears throat> it's always different. I mean, you're to find your way in is always different with a new artist. Now, once you've bonded, once you have given somebody something great, something they can use, something that makes them smile or laugh or rejoice, then, then you kind of don't have to think about it anymore. You just keep trying stuff and, and whatever sticks, sticks. But in, in the first 15 minutes, if it's a new artist, um, they put up the track and you put up a sound and you might say, hey, what are you looking for here? Or you might start playing something, and if you can tell they're not pleased, then you quickly stop playing it and try something else. Um, you know, I always held my cards to my chest so they couldn't see really what my preferences were. If I found out one preference, because let's say the day before, the young person you're working with thinks ZZ Top is the greatest band in the world, and then... On this particular day, if you mention ZZ Top, they think they hired the wrong guy because they don't want anything like that on their music. So it's literally that personal. So <clears throat> I think at a certain point, if an artist is showing you a song and everybody's tracking together, you can kind of intuit how to embellish what they're doing. You know, like right. I did a Jason Mraz record once where he would show us every song. And because he he perfects these songs with his voice and his guitar, they're perfect when he plays it for you. So in that situation, you're trying to do something colorful that doesn't actually hurt what is already already perfect because <laughs> it's perfect. Right. And so you might, you know, it's a little usually a little cleaner, smaller thing that might just lace in and out of the vocal. Um and then in other situations, it might be a young woman who's not really a musician, but just wants to be a celebrity. And there's a track up and you want to do something that sounds like a keyboard sample or, you know, or you want to do something that sounds like Nile Rodgers. And that's your way in. 
Right. So you're dealing with two entirely different reasons for being and motivations. And you don't judge the person that wants to be a celebrity because you're just, you know, the producer might be your best friend and he's going to go on to do other, he's going to go on to work with Jason Mraz. So you never, you know, I always treated everybody equally. And if, even if they weren't musicians, I tried to give them what they make their dream come true so that when they right. left the session, the song sounded amazing. Uh, and it wouldn't, it doesn't matter who it is. So it's, it's not that extraordinary of a thing to be able to do anymore. You just have to, I mean, if you don't know how to do it, if you just don't say anything and you just read the room and uh, wait as long as possible to actually show your cards, that might work too. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, but it's different every day. Every day is the first day of school and, uh, and you can recover if you play the wrong thing too. I mean, there's no, there's no, uh, as long as you recover quickly, you know, <laughs> if you play right. something and they hate it, then, uh, you, you know, just say, well, what are you feeling here? I mean, there's always that. I mean, I remember in Nashville hearing musicians say they actually would talk about the part before they play it. And here in LA, we never did that. It was more like, how can we know if I say what I'm going to play, usually it's going to actually quickly turn out to be the opposite of that. So I stopped saying it. I just, it's more, you know, intuition and feel and reading the room. Right. Yeah. I think something for me, and I'm sure a lot of people that make music and, and whatnot for fun that I struggle with is I, every, every time I go to record a guitar part, like if I'm doing a, a demo or a video or something, or even if I'm just trying to get an idea out of my head, one of the things that I, I tend to throw everything at the track. I'll, I'll use um, the, I'll, every sound. If I listen to it in isolation, has to be the best sound possible. And and sometimes I tend to forget how you really have to hone in on serving the song, even with just the tonality of your guitar. And sometimes a, a bad sound is the best sound. And like at least that's what I've found when I'm trying to like make parts for, for things. Um, do you have any input on that or any advice for me when I'm trying to create like rhythm and then parts on top of each other? Well, once again, it depends on the genre you're working in. Right. If I was working on a Tim McGraw record, which I never have, but I, I worked with Rascal Flatts and Faith Hill. Um, I've, you know, had a few minor flirtations with country pop artists and you go full eighties, nineties, full adult, um, hi-fi slick everything. But this is back to what we were just talking about. If, if it's an artist like Bob Dylan or Lana Del Rey, who are two artists that I've worked with, you don't want to sound like the adult hi-fi player. So when you say a bad guitar sound, I understand what you mean by that, but you don't really mean that. I know you just mean right. a, a sound that's not hi-fi. Um, and in those situations, you, you win the day by doing something that is more lo-fi. So right. it's all legitimate, right? You know, and somebody who's really a great producer is going, might hear a guitar part that sounds kind of broken and that's what they want. And they want it to travel right over here in the left speaker and that's all they need. And you have to be ready to do that too, right? <laughs> right. So, yeah. 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 That's, it's, it's something that, that I, I struggle with when I'm trying to um, just get things out of my hands. It's like I, I get in my own way a lot. And that's something that I think a lot of guitarists who might not, I don't have a whole lot of experience recording. It's all been in service of, of doing the pedal thing. Um, so it, it's every time is a learning experience. And I'm sure that, you know, for everybody, it every time you click on the computer and press record, it's a learning experience. But it's something that I I try to have to remind myself that not every part can be this huge 
like gigantic guitar sound because you throw all that together and it just turns to to mush when you try to listen back, especially if you're listening through one of these or something. That's right. You're, you would be right. So true. Um, so we had some questions asking about your transition into this wild world of YouTube. And um, I wanted to touch on that, the, the, the step into YouTube, the step into teaching and becoming a content creator. Um, did that, did that feel natural for you? You leaning into this role of, of staring at a camera? <laughs> well, one thing uh, about that particular, well, so I did one thing for decades and that was just, I was a hired guitar player doing sessions for people, serving artists, songwriters, composers, engineers, you know, producers. And, that I knew I could do. I, I used to be a songwriter, but then I realized, oh, all the people I'm in rooms with write better songs than I do. So if I give that up and just be a guitar player, life will be better. And it was. It was 10 times better when I gave up songwriting. I wrote some songs. I got covers. They, I earned some money doing it. But I found that you know, if you are aware of your limitations and you find the most practical thing you can possibly do, it can work out. So I, I just... I just wanted to be a recording guitar player. And luckily, uh, I wasn't as good or as schooled or as versatile as many of the studio musicians I worked with, but I tried really hard. And with guitar, they kind of allow you to be quirky and, and, uh, <laughs> you can read the chord chart and, and try and fill in, you know, if there's some, if there are notes to read, you can learn them. You can, they give the guitar player a, a little more latitude in being, you know, less trained or whatever. So I did one thing forever, but about 15 years ago, I realized, oh, how do I want the next chapter to unfold and play out? Because as a studio musician, even if you're the best studio musician in the world, at a certain point, you will age out. Um, but beyond that, the actual business changed to where there were more ceilings on budgets. People wanted to do you to do more work for less money. You know, you twice the work for half the money and then four times the work for one quarter of the money, that kind of thing. I hate to touch on that because it, it's, you know, but in the era I grew up in, it was uh, and when I moved here in the 80s and, I, you know, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. The music business was a giant, robust um, campus of, you know, many, many things. So uh, I, I just, you know, so I've been doing it for 30 years and I thought, how do I want this to transition? I discovered some people who were doing big businesses online. Marty Schwartz. I met Marty Schwartz and yes. I met him through Brett Papa. And uh, there was a drummer named Mike in Northern California. He had Mike's Lessons. And then right after that, Scott's bass lessons, I discovered these musicians who had businesses online. And I thought if I can actually just create a small version of that, that's actually a business that would be real. And the, the main thing about these businesses is, is they are products rather than services. So, you create an online business and an online education business, and it's they're not buying your service. They're not paying you for your time. They're buying something you already made. And so right. it, it's, you know, it's similar to when you have a pedal that just sells and sells and sells and sells. So it, I spent my whole life providing a service. This is, you know, the, the idea of having something that people would buy that's not me. So I don't have to be there to earn the money. That was that was part of it. But it just seemed like something with my, all my limitations that I could pull off. So I started uh, 15 years ago and I did a double shift for a decade doing sessions full time and doing this in all my spare time. And then gradually I was able to transition to mostly this. And now I just do sessions for family and friends. Sorry for the long answer, but there oh, it is. <laughs> so had, had you taught much prior to having a YouTube channel? I taught when I was a teenager for money, and I taught in my late 20s for money when I was broke in two situations. And I really enjoyed it. I mean, it was 
teaching one-on-one is intensely draining and intensely intense. <laughs> yes, yes. But I, I enjoyed it. I always felt like I learned more than the student did. It was There's a miracle to that. But it, it's really, really draining to teach one-on-one. So I, I don't do that. I get asked, but I, I don't do that. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, it's pretty incredible because this is something that I was I was once at a NAM party and someone told me, you know, all these pedals that you've made, are there are little pieces of you that are kind of everywhere, which is a pretty cool way to think about it. And for you, the fact that you're teaching and, and, and inspiring so many people literally everywhere, um, th- does it like hit you every now and again sometimes because i know you're probably like me you get lost in the work and you you forget to take a step back and realize what you're doing and and how important it is to so many people um does that ever enter your brain absolutely i mean that is the greatest thing about going to a trade show i mean what the when sweetwater was open to the public it was amazing for that but nam it's amazing for that the only reason i go to nam because you as you know nam is not really a viable gear destination anymore uh is is people from all over the world who show so much appreciation uh you know and you do get appreciation from yeah it's it's most of the time it's humble work that you just keep doing uh but reaching people on youtube is is really gratifying because if even if a video doesn't really perform well you're still filling a stadium with, in my case, you know, if I have a video that fails, I still get 20,000 views or 40,000 views. And that's, that's, that's a full house at at a large venue for an artist. So I am grateful for that, you know, and then Mm -hmm. some of the videos go to a hundred thousand, some go to a million. And that's, it's to be able to reach that many people after being behind the scenes for an entire career. I, I, I feel incredibly grateful. It, it keeps me going. And you are right. It, it, it's it's a double a double-edged sword because, you know, I spend an enormous amount of time on titles and thumbnails for YouTube videos because that's the only reason people click. It has nothing to do. Well, of course, you have to have something good, but they will not click if you don't wake them up somehow. And that takes hours and hours to, to get those right. And, and to and to get them right if you're trying to save a video that you've just released it's not doing well so there are parts of this that i would rather not be doing Mm -hmm. uh but but yes i'm grateful this is so much more fun and so much more of a real business than my last one you know part of it is when you're in the entertainment business you're waiting for permission to earn money you're waiting for the phone call and then when you get that phone call they will say we only have this much will you do it and you're left with that decision this is different than that. This is, this is, nobody's giving me permission to earn money. I make the thing. And if I can, if I can invite more people into the master class, then it does better. It's, it's, sure. it's so, it's wonderful. Anyway, back to your, your actual question. I do have that realization very frequently that this is the greatest thing I ever imagined. But then right. it's right back to the most humble work in the world. Making videos is is you fall on your face all the time. <laughs> oh man, I I mean I'm I'm right there with you because I'm trying to do a little bit of both now. Yeah. And um, you know, I, every time I, I I we prototype circuits constantly. You know, every 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 month I'll get at least one or two that I thought maybe this will sound good, and maybe a few a year really sound decent and uh it my, my poor wife like every time a, a circuit board shows up and i'm like oh yeah that thing just it just sounded really bad and i tried really hard <laughs> and she just pats me on the back she's like it's all right this you're still everything's okay <laughs> um do you do all your like photoshopping and everything like for for the for the channel are you making all that stuff yourself all your thumbnails i do all the thumbnails yeah yeah oh, man I think that's something that if anyone wants to get into this game, you don't realize, I mean, and this, this is true for any business. There's so much you have to learn that's so far beyond even the basics of like paying taxes and, you know, setting up a corporation and all those things, like learning how to do 
a, a nice high quality image. It just, I think that for me, uh, is something that I've seen more of my YouTuber friends stress about literally more than anything at all. And have you found like your, your, your process for that? Do you know, kind of if, if you take a photo in the right way, if you put the right text on it, what's going to work and doesn't like, can you offer any advice to any of the people that might be wanting to try to do this themselves? Well, clickbait works. So don't, yes. don't be afraid to, you know, uh, <laughs> pull your pants down, you know, for it's, <laughs> it's just, it's yeah. And then you have those people who get really mad at you for clickbait, but you try and say, well, Nobody would be watching this video if I didn't use the clickbait. Uh, just be willing to change. You know, I can make a, a thumbnail and a title that I know is going to work. Like I featured Andy Powers' guitar. You know, he's the CEO of Taylor, and I, I featured his electric guitar. And, I, I, you know, I, I kicked some stuff around for a couple of weeks. You know, I work for hours, you know, Days before I put out a video, I'm putting hours into trying different thumbnails. I even showed somebody. Uh, I did a Mason Stoops interview. Mason's a lovely guitar player out here. And um, I made 211 thumbnails before I released. No, I, I made some of them afterwards. I actually made one th thumbnail and the, it, the video tanked and I pulled it down. I started over. But anyway, I made 211 thumbnails for his, his video alone. Now, it sounds bigger than it is. Most of those are just save as. So if I make a word right. a little smaller, I save as, save as, save as. So most of those are just saving what I've done so I don't have to try and recreate it. But that's a hard one. An interview these days is hard because they've been done to death, which, you know, you'll find out when you release my in interview. <laughs> it's a podcast. Um <laughs> And I wanted to represent him well, you know, I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to do right by him and it did pretty well. Um, mm. But back to Andy Powers, I did it. I did a thumbnail which featured the guitar case. So you look at what is the most unique thing about this besides the guitar? Well, the case is unbelievable. So you take the guitar case, you open it up just a few inches. And all this has been done before by Tyler Larson and everybody we know. Yeah, and, and I copy red all the time, too. You know, it's basically just copy red. Yeah, there you go. End of story. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so I opened the guitar case like three inches, and you see this blue guitar in this amazing guitar place, car case, and then the words sold out. And then I think the title was, Why This Guitar Is Totally Sold Out. I knew that would work. I knew it. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the time, I'll make a beautiful thumbnail and title, <clears throat> It'll tank, and I have to spend my entire Sunday trying to come up with new campaigns to save it. And if you're willing right. to do that work and and keep trying new stuff after the video is released, you might be able to save it. You might not, but it's a lot of work. Right. Um, in in regards to what, what – okay, so we, we know you make a lot of thumbnails. We know you, you play a lot of guitar and make videos. What do you like to do for fun that's not guitar? Because that's something that I think we as guitar players – and I've seen this a lot recently. People have gotten in, in extreme ruts, and the thing that I always tell somebody is just don't, don't mess with it for a minute. So what resets your brain, or do you even have to do that? Well, one of the things uh, – as a session musician, I lived on the edge of burnout my entire career. Uh, I would just, you know, I was burned out, but you have to show up because you're booked and you dig deep and you do it again, you dig deep and you do it again. So there's some of that. Um, you can bet that your favorite surgeon, your favorite doctor, anybody in any career that they've committed to goes, okay, I've been doing this 22 years and it's kind of the same every day. I am saving people's lives, you know, but if you're a doctor, you know, uh, but here's the office, here's the bills, the insurance is going up, you know, somebody's in a bad mood, uh, traffic was bad. The, in many ways, burnout is always there. But yeah. the, the, the thing about social media, like a, a lot of my YouTuber friends at this point, I, I know that if you really, really asked them, they would, if you really 
after you've been doing it for a while, if you had the choice, if you could just be successful without social media, I think a lot of people at this point would just give it up because there's something about social media that, first of all, you're pairing yourself. It's a partnership with a totally unreliable partner, <laughs> whether it be YouTube yes. or Instagram or TikTok or whatever. That partner is going to drop the ball no matter what you do. They're going to drop the ball on you. And and so it, it's. And then even the thing is, even when you have your biggest video ever, it creates this. It's almost worse because then you go, mm -hmm. first of all, I can't sustain this. I can't do another video on that subject. You know, Andy Powers just made one guitar. It got sold out next this week. I don't have a sold out guitar. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> it's like, right. So it's it's I think the social media thing is does poison the well at a certain point. So your question is totally legitimate. Uh, my answer lately has been to, you know, I don't do, I only do two videos a month. I used to do one mm -hmm. video a week and I see a lot of people heading in that direction, just doing less. Some people aren't, you know, I mean, there are a lot of kids who do three to five videos a week and, and they'll be able to sustain it forever. Also it depends on your personality. I was never meant to be this focused on myself. The era, the era I grew up in, you were focused on the song and everybody else. Not you weren't focused on yourself. And if you're better at focusing on yourself, uh, then it's more natural. Okay, so back to your question, burnout. Uh, the way I handle it is this. So I give my wife the second half of every Saturday and Sunday. I get a lot done on the weekends, but I work. I used to say I work a half a day, seven days a week. Okay. But it's actually four tenths of a day. <laughs> I was telling uh -huh. somebody the other day, I am very inefficient and being inefficient is how I avoid burnout. You know, I drink coffee and look at my laptop in the morning. I answer phone calls. I talk to my friends. I go out to eat every night. I walk for an hour, uh, in the summertime, I swim every night. Um, I watch everything in the world uh, on TV at night before I go to bed, you know, some show from France, some show from, you know, what, you know, some show I watched, like I just watched the wire for the third time in a row, the entire season of the wire. <laughs> I've been through Bosch twice in a row fully. So in, in the evening, uh, one way of putting it as I make work somewhat mandatory until 4 PM. And then I make work mm -hmm. optional from 4 PM till I go to bed. I usually get a really good inspired hour of guitar playing done in the evening. Uh, it's one mm -hmm. of my favorite things after I've walked. And when yeah. I walk, I am often, you know, I talk to Rick Beato a, a lot of nights when I walk, I talk to other people. I return calls when I walk a lot. Yeah. I get I get him right before he goes to bed because <clears throat> I'm, uh, it'll be seven for me and 10 for him or eight for me and 11 for him. Sure. So it's, it's a good yeah. life, but it's inefficiency. Honestly, it's inefficiency that actually makes life enjoyable. Yeah. I, I've found for myself that actually well, moving out of the house was, was the biggest thing for me. Cause I can't, I, I don't, <clears throat> I have a soldering iron at the, at the house that I use for, um, I fixed our ceiling fan once like, so I don't, I don't even use it on guitars anymore. So I having like a hard out where I, I physically stop myself from working has saved my mental health, um, a lot. And it, it's good to hear that you have like, you know, rules about I'm going to stop or try to stop <laughs> around this time. Because I think a lot of people, they just work and work and work and work until they, they, they completely implode. Well, and I did the workaholic thing. I went 12 years without a vacation from about two yeah. year to year 2000 to about 2012. I was so busy doing sessions that I, we, we didn't take one single vacation. I know, I know that life I've done it. It's, it's, and in some ways in your thirties and forties, you kind of, there's an argument that one of the financial guys that I follow um, Scott Galloway talks about, Hey, you kind of have to, if you're going to build something, you know, if you're in your thirties or forties, you kind of have to ignore the family a little bit and build, if you, you want to build something, it's just a, a reality. Um, and it's great to see, hear somebody say that truth because it's, it's, it's not a popular thing to say. Musicians are workaholics. Musicians work twice as hard as anybody on the planet because you, you, you really do 
work every waking hour every day of the week you know yeah you really do are are you forever thinking about the next idea the next um <clears throat> lesson the next you know what what's coming is that always do you have that kind of charted out or is it just this mill in your head that's always turning no and, and let me go back to when you said you have rules i have no rules because if i do a day of work and it's not good i have to start over so there's no schedule you know i yeah. i don't release anything that i'm not happy with and if i do a live stream i spend most of the week preparing for it by researching and even rehearsing you know i want my live streams to have a, a, a thread to them um so there are no rules there's no organization i a lot of the videos you see are just 100% repairs of bad videos that you haven't seen. So it's not, there's no rhyme or reason to it. And when you say, do I have the next idea? No, when I finish something, I go, I am dead in the water. I have nothing. How do I, how, how am I going to even figure out what to do next? And then it's that few days of agony when you're choosing the next thing, because the problem with choosing the next thing, if you choose the wrong thing and commit time to it, that's the worst thing you can do. I've learned that. I mean, you can see a lot of YouTubers do it. They just feel like they have to do a video. So they choose an idea. And my videos are very labor intensive. Usually there are people more talented than me who do videos almost spontaneously. I'm not that guy. So I have to be very careful with what I choose. So I'll take two or three days try some different ideas, try some contents, concepts, think about uh, a, a title and, and thumbnail in advance. And that's where I'm at now is I will also just sit until I, I will not do something until I feel like I've chosen something that the audience will click on. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's what, what you just touched on is a problem that anybody who's a creative or a maker of things, it's, we thrive at least, at least for me, when, when like we're getting ready to release, we just released a chorus and the the build up to that, getting the prototypes, getting all the components and making it and having that final, the first one in, in my hand. And then we ship them to dealers and everything's, you know, gone. And then the day after you send out, you know, all your UPS shipments all over the globe, I start to panic a little bit because I, I just, I, I haven't, I've been so wrapped up in what I'm doing, what I've been doing. I haven't thought about what I'm going to do next. Which is, thankfully, we have grown to the point where I have a manager who can kind of like snap his fingers at me <laughs> and keep me on the straight and narrow. But that's something that I think a lot of people suffer with, that it feels very isolating in the moment when those things happen. You feel like, oh, this is just, you know, this is my problem. But I think we all can sympathize with that that feeling. And, and if, if you are someone out there, if anyone's listening who suffers with those sort of feelings, just talk to someone else who's creative because they can help <laughs> steer the ship a little bit. Well, and it's very hard because we are all doing something that's been done before so many times that it's very easy to, to feel, you know, like, why should I even do this? Because it's been done. But if you can get past, that's not a legitimate voice. I mean, even Rhett said to me once, he felt like the answer to that was, <clears throat> I mean, your favorite movie directors are constantly retelling the same story. There's only a few stories in humanity that they're right. going to tell. And, and everybody tells it a different way. And then Ben Eller even said to me when I asked, because I pose, you know, just like you, I talk to people don't realize that we all talk to each other. All of us in the right. guitar community are talking to each other all the time. I'm talking to Ben Eller. I'm talking to Rhett. I'm talking to you now. I talk to mm -hmm. Robert Baker all the time. I talk to Corey Congelio all the time. We all are talking all the time. It's really, yeah. really wonderful that way. And it's Ben Eller had this great thing where he said, well, uh, <clears throat> if you're in a grocery store and there's one person who sees one aisle, uh, they're going to see a whole bunch of stuff. But maybe that person uh, doesn't see your stuff. And when they go into the next aisle, they'll see your stuff. And it's like, so you got to do it because, you know, everybody's traveling down these roads in these silos. And if somebody's watched one of Ben Biller, Ben Biller's, Ben, ben Eller's videos <laughs> on Yngwie Malmsteen, well, <clears throat> uh, maybe those people, you know, maybe my people haven't seen my video on Yngwie. You know, you see what I'm saying? It's, it's, oh yeah. yeah. And, and that, that actually, 
it's pretty amazing how much people don't see on YouTube. You know, it's, it's almost like these audiences <clears throat> are somewhat customized. I mean, we share a lot of the same people, yeah. but, and people are so busy, they might not catch, you know, you know, somebody's video about the orange amplifier, but they'll catch yours, you know, or maybe they're ready. Mm. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's, yeah, uh, yeah. I have even thought that I could actually do the same video once a year and people are so busy and so over, you know, <laughs> saturated that they wouldn't mind literally the same video. Hey. You know, that's a great test. <laughs> I think you should try. I mean, I mean, it's so true because I, I, my wife and I talk about this all the time because I'll say, do you think that, I mean, th there is something out there for everybody and all those things exist on YouTube. Like one time I thought, you know, I've never seen uh, competitive yo-yoing, but I bet there is hundreds and hundreds of channels that exist just for that. And that's something that whenever people ask me, like, should I get into the pedal game or should, you know, you do this or that? It's like, yeah, why not? Because you never know. You might blow up or it does. It, I yeah. think ultimately the thing we all have to remember is that if you're doing it for yourself and it's fun and it's not a detriment to your life. I mean, it, sometimes it becomes that after it becomes a real business. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it, just do it. I, it, it. You're the only person that could ever stand in your way, I think, is you for the most part. Well, and my my solution is two videos a month now. And yeah. I do have to say, I, I have about 5,000 members in the who pay for the masterclass. And they're the most important part of this whole component. And I, I just made I just released like 35 beginner videos for the masterclass. And when I get back from a trip I'm taking, I'm going to start doing I'm going to start restocking some of the tone tips and studio tips and gear tips for the masterclass. The thing about the masterclass is I don't have to entertain. Social media at this point is so high octane that you have to entertain. But when I yeah. do a masterclass video, it's almost like therapy. I just sit. I'm boring. I teach. It's it's almost like therapy. I can uh, so that's this year moving forward. I'm really really going to keep adding to the masterclass. And, and those videos are a pleasure, almost like therapy at this point. Cause you did ask if it was hard for me to get in front of a camera originally, it was, it was terrible. I mean, three years of cringeworthy early videos are terrible, but you get better at it. And some, you know, it's, yeah. it's, and, and as I said, the actual thing that people are, you know, the, the product that I'm offering people is just this giant collection of, of, where I'm more like this, it's just natural. I'm, I don't have to entertain. It's the most wonderful yeah. thing. So, yeah. Yeah. Being, being able to look at a camera and switch on and become almost like a, a, caric a caricature of yourself in a way is uh, like, for me, it was very draining and it took oh, it a is. lot. No, it is. It is draining. Yeah. 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 yeah the, the first time I ever did Nam, uh, just standing there and having to smile and like, talk yeah. to everyone yeah. that came around the booth. It was, yeah. it, 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 it takes so much out of you and it's not for everybody. And then I think, I mean, obviously if you're going to make YouTube, you have to do this. You don't, if you build pedals, you can be anonymous, but, um, but yeah, it's, it's something that I think not, not everyone is quite prepared for, but you, you, it just, it's like anything you just got to practice for sure. <laughs> well, um, while we wrap up here, where can everyone go to see all your great, lessons, Tim? Well, this makes my wife really uh, unhappy when I say this, but just Google me. <laughs> uh, that's all you got to do. Okay. I mean, it's, it's, I've, I've built enough of a brand where that's all you have to do. Um, Tim Pierce guitar, every video I've ever made has a call to action on YouTube for my masterclass. Mm -hmm. So, um, if you want lessons, Tim Pierce masterclass, just, just, uh, you know, it's easy. All roads lead to the same place. Isn't that a surreal thing that we, we get to a point where you can Google yourself and you're the person that shows up? That was never something that I thought. I mean, I have a pretty unique name, but it, I uh, it, it was it, it was weird when when uh, I went to like a high school reunion and people were like, oh, yeah, I looked you up and it was weird. I was like, that is weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, I see your brand growing and uh, it's. I think you're getting a taste of how how wonderful it is to reach people directly. 
And that's the greatest thing. It's just so nice to be able to reach people. And people are so grateful and so wonderful and so appreciative and supportive. And that's the best thing about this. It's wonderful. Everybody out there. Well, awesome. Well, um, thank you, Tim. Everybody go give uh, Tim a Google (laughs) and uh, find out more about his lessons, subscribe to his channel, do all the things that, that you have to do with this day and age. But uh, thank you, sir. And thank you. hopefully see you soon. See you soon. All right. So huge thanks to Tim. Tim is a legend. He's we didn't even get into all of the incredible recordings. Just go to his Wikipedia, Google him, like you said, and peruse all the records and songs he's played on. It's it's pretty mind boggling. But above all that, he's an incredible guy an incredible teacher. He's got some great insight into just being creative and all those things. So I hope you guys enjoyed that episode as much as I did. And for those that are curious about where the rig dipping has gone, I want all of our patrons over on Patreon to submit new pictures of the rigs. If you're interested in getting your rig dipped, you can do that over on patreon.com. So check that out. Again, I want to thank the sponsor of this episode, Sweetwater. If you're interested in any of the equipment I use for recording videos or just playing guitar, not all of it is available at Sweetwater, but they have a ton of stuff. So go check out sweetwater.com. Get the gear you want to create the music and the content that you want to make, even if it's just for yourself, just to have fun. Go check it out, sweetwater.com. Thank you guys for watching No Shill this week. We're going to keep this nice and tight, and we'll catch you on the next one. Don't forget, please subscribe to the channel. See you guys. 